Y'all please take a seat. Well, hey, if I haven't had the chance of meeting you yet, my name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs, and man, welcome. We are so glad that you guys are here as you come, as you gather with us, and you get connected. Wherever you are as you come, and perhaps you're like part of the high school students that are currently in an exodus out those doors, who just like them, we can walk through here, and we can be everything from wrestling with faith. If God was good, if God was kind, if God was loving, why would he let this? We can be in a place where, hey, maybe we don't really even believe this, but we've come, or maybe like me, for so many years. I just always went, so why would I not go? It's not that I didn't care, but it's also not that I really did care. Or you're here, and you're walking faithfully with Christ doing your best, as a friend of mine says, to stumble in the direction of faithfulness. Wherever you are, we're glad you're here. Where we've been the past couple weeks, past couple months now, I think about it, is we're going to wait in a series called Goals. We're calling it Goals because we're examining the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, for those of you who don't know about it, it's just, it was just this church in Thessalonica, modern-day Greece. The apostle Paul, he wrote them this letter And he writes this letter of encouragement, reflecting on them and celebrating their faithfulness as this new young body. And the reason we're working our way through it is what we want to do is we want to establish goals. It's that same idea as we, how do we create almost the target, if you will, of faithfulness and saying, by God's grace, how do we as a body, how do we as a church grow more and more? to look like Jesus. That's the only goal. Before we jump into that though, uh, I wanna share with you guys a memory of mine, not so much a story, but just a memory. It had to do with the moment when I had my, uh, what I'll call meet the parents moment, right? If any of you guys, you've seen the movie Ben Stewart, maybe you know what I'm talking about, but it was the moment when I went to meet for the first time, my now in-laws. Now, for some of you, maybe when you met your wife's parents, she met your parents, that was a long time ago. Or maybe some of you, hey, you've got kids, right? And they're coming, and all of a sudden, you're meeting their boyfriends, their girlfriends, and you're then getting to know them. And you have this meet the parents moment. And here's at least what was true of mine, and I'm betting it has been, or Lord willing, one day will be true of yours. I was nervous. Like, I was excited for it. I was still nervous. Here was why. I really liked my then girlfriend, now wife, Taylor. I liked her. I was excited to get to know her. She told me wonderful things about her parents. Like I had no reason to fear he was going to show up with like a shotgun and like every other country song. He's just like cleaning it as I'm sitting there talking to him like, oh, will you be home at 10? (laughs) Yes, sir. Now I didn't have to fear any of that kind of stuff. No over the top, nothing like that. But I can remember being nervous. Why? Because man, I wanted to keep getting to know their daughter. And a parent, rightly so, they can in a way act as a gatekeeper to where if that doesn't go well, if that first impression, I walk out the door, door closes, dad turns to daughter, hey, sweetheart, let me talk to you about how I think you should date a different guy. Yeah, (laughs) I started dating her, Taylor, and my mom was like, John, you can do it this time right? We can do it differently. So all I have to say is there was some angst going into it. I can remember the way I was going to meet him. Taylor 
We've been dating, I don't know, three months, not long. She was gonna move, so my job, hey, I'll help her move. And then her parents were coming in town. We lived in Dallas. They were coming in from East Texas. And I can remember we go show up, and there were three things that stood out. And it was more of a moment than a story. Because I can remember walking up these stairs, turning right into this apartment building. And she's just going from one apartment to another. Same complex, not that far. And I can remember turning, and there, there was my girlfriend, Taylor. And then, what I didn't know at the time, but my future in-laws. And I remember three things went through my head. The first thing, right, what's still true today, they were kind, they were gracious, and they were generally, they were just very good to me. I am blessed with phenomenal in-laws. If you're somebody's in-law, treat them well. And they've done that since the beginning. The second thing I can remember, and now you have to stay with me as I explain this part. The second thing I remember is realizing then, his name's Stephen. I just called him Mr. Fuller at the time. Now I call him Stephen, right? Mr. Fuller is jacked, right? My father-in-law-to-be is jacked. I'm gonna show you just a normal photo right here. Check, check this out. That is my mother-in-law. That's my daughter, Lily. My father-in-law, that's Stephen Fuller, right? Now this next one, he might be a little embarrassed if I show you this next one, but what I'm just trying to accentuate not little. Let me show them the next photo. Yeah. Dude, you see those traps? I can remember turning in and being like, your dad is like a miniature Hulk. You didn't tell me that. Like, he would be embarrassed me showing that, but like his bicep, like he can't do this. You know what I'm saying? Like his biceps, the size of my thigh, and I don't have small thighs. Right? But I can remember, so the second impression I have is like, he's jacked, like the moments where you go to carry the sofa or whatever. Like there was never a time where he was like, hey, John, I need a second to really get my hands right. Or, hey, I'm, I'm kind of tired. And there are a couple of times where I'm like, dear God, I'm tired. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> right? As I'm just tracking the sofa up and down. So I remember he's jacked. Don't mess this up. But really, though, it kind, of, it kind of bled into the next theme of, hey, I wanted to make a good impression. Why? I wanted the opportunity to keep getting to know his daughter, to have a chance to be a part of her life, to influence her, to be influenced by. Because boyfriends and girlfriends, they do that. They have an impact, which y'all know. Thankfully, by God's grace, there was an impression where after that, I had the chance, man. I, I kept going and dating his daughter. Years later, I can remember sitting across the table from him in the Denny's and asking if he would be all right. He and his wife, she wasn't able to make it. They'd be all right if I asked her hand in marriage. And man, he was so gracious and kind. I said, absolutely. There was an excitement to him. And the only reason that was, the only reason is because by God's grace and God's grace alone, there'd been a heart of faithfulness to steward from the beginning. How do I steward this relationship well? So I have the opportunity to get to know his daughter. Here's the reason I start with that. Today, where we are in the text, here's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about how we as Christians, we are responsible. We have an opportunity to steward and to get to know people. Why? So we can earn the chance to be a part of their life. So we can earn trust to influence them. So today what we're gonna talk about is how do we as Christians earn the opportunity to influence others. 
And others really, when I specifically, I say others, and we'll see in the context here, I'm talking about those who don't believe what we believe or, or perhaps are working through faith or confused in faith, but are on the outside of what we would call a fellowship, not as in a we're exclusive, you can't come in, but in terms of, hey, God loves them in the same way he loves us. How do they unite with us? Now, I think the American church Believe or non-believer, we have a huge issue with this because what I'm talking about, it is a perception to it. This past week, as I was studying this, I came across a study done by Gray Matter Research called What Difference Does Christianity excuse me, Really Make? What Difference Does Christianity Really Make? It was, a, it was a study conducted across all 50 states within the United States where they ask questions of people, hey, how do you feel Christianity has impacted this or that? And those in the study, they could give one of three answers. They could give up, hey, Christianity has a positive effect. Christianity has a neutral effect. Christianity has a negative effect. Every percentage I'm about to read you is combining Christianity has either a neutral no real impact, a neutral or negative. It's either Christianity doesn't impact it, it's ineffective towards it, or it actually hurts it. And this will be, hey, what do people think about us as we strive to influence others? How are we doing? The first thing, the amount of crime in society 55% of people view Christianity's impact on it as neutral or negative. The amount of crime, the amount of poverty, 55% of folks view it as neutral or negative. The amount of violence, 61%. 61% have a perception that Christianity is neutral or negative towards it. And here's what stood out to me. 25% are in the negative category. So I'm not saying 25% of this room believes this, but I'm saying in, in a research study across the United States, 27% of people are represented as Christianity has a negative impact in terms of the rate of violence. This, is, this one blew my mind. Ethics in the business world, ethics in the business world, 66% of people said neutral or negative. Church, I'm telling you, we got a huge opportunity there. If we want to influence people, have the opportunity to care for them, to have them hear us out, the way we go about witnessing this world, we can, as the text will say, excel still more. The way I want to do that is I just want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're just going to check out three verses. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12, 9 through 12, and we're going to talk about it in three different ways. How do Christians gain the opportunity to influence others? Then we do it when we love deeply. We do it when we live peacefully. And we do it when we labor diligently. To set this text up, what, what, what's been happening is Paul, he wrote this letter to this church. In the first three chapters, he really just reflected on them. He gave them a ton of encouragement. And then he shifted in chapter four where he said, hey, in response to this love of Christ that you have, 
How can you excel still more? How can your faith grow? Last week, we talked about the first thing he goes after. It's our purity. Our purity. Relationship with God and honoring with him and then relationships with others. And this week, here's what you're gonna see why. You're gonna see the text, it's gonna shift. It's gonna shift where it's gonna talk about part of the reason Christians, the church, is called to live more and more is not just for us. It's for them. It's not just for those who feel comfortable or even are culturally attuned to attending a service on a Sunday morning. It's for everybody who currently thinks they never would, and yet one day God will say, come. For them. I'm gonna read through the verses. We'll go nine through 12, and then I'll circle back. Verse nine, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I can't wait to teach on that part. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That was that region Thessalonica was in. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, verse 12, I'm asking you to pay particular attention to verse 12 at the beginning because it's the lens that we're gonna see this text through. So that, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So as we break out, what are the three themes that impact a Christian's ability to take advantage of the opportunity to gain trust, to gain influence, to gain the right to speak into the life of another. Paul's gonna say the reason we do that is that's part of the reason we're here, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Jump back out with me. We're gonna read verses nine through 10, and then we're gonna go through it. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So knowing the context is building towards so that you may walk properly towards outsiders. The first thing this text is teaching you and it's teaching me is the way we influence those who don't believe or questioning what we believe or wrestling with what we believe outsiders is when they see how we love deeply. The first point out of this text, love deeply. Here's, here's what I love about this too. Paul, he, he's gonna set it up where at the beginning he says, as you're already doing, as you've been taught by God, and then he ends it with do so more and more. The first idea he's telling them, he's saying, hey guys, you're already doing this well. He, he's not coming with them in challenge or rebuke and saying, hey church, lock it up. No, he's coming and he's saying way to go. And then he gives the secret for how they're going about it. Love in this section, it's used two different times. The first one you see, brotherly love. The Greek root there, it goes down to philia. <laughs> For some of you, if you've grown up in church, you may know what that means, is it means brotherly affection. Philadelphia, it's where we get Philadelphia. 
the city of brotherly love. It's the component of there's this family love that the church has towards each other that the outside world looks in and sees that's something different. It's the theme Paul's been building on throughout this book of the church is not like a family. The church is a family. Brotherly affection. Then he goes on and he says, hey, and you've had the world's greatest teacher. Paul doesn't say him. He says, you've been taught by God to love one another. He uses a different type of word for love the second time. The Greek root there, it's agape. If you don't know what agape means, it's just, it's the purest, most noble form of love. It's unconditional. These people in Thessalonica church, prayerfully, just like us, they've received this love from God where God looks at them the way he looks at me. And he says, John, despite every brokenness, bad decision, wrong thing you have done, wrong thing you still do, prideful moments of arrogance, your foolishness in the future, I love you. That's why I sent Jesus. He died for you. And he died for you because he loves you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And because by God's grace, I've believed Agape, unconditional. And what does that unconditional love do? It motivates, it fuels, it drives. Philia, brotherly love. The way we love each other must be exceptional, extraordinary, Holy Spirit driven only because it wins the right to influence others. I saw this recently through a friend of mine. She, uh, so she, she, she's been a Christian for some time, but really recently, she's more growing in her faith, getting connected to it, really taking it seriously in a lot of ways. And she, just like a lot of people as they're getting connected to faith, taking huge steps of growth. But at the same time, taking huge steps of growth, what happens to her? The same thing that happens to me. Trips, stumbles, falls down, makes a mess of it. A few weeks ago, she'd gone out with a group of friends. Now, these friends, they're great folks. They're, they're not followers of Jesus Christ, but she goes out, hangs out, goes to a bar, has a nice evening. What happened to her is what happened to me many times. She made a choice, drank one too many, ended the night drunk. To where she'd driven there, where towards the end, her friends, like, like in a way, they had to like take her and then drive her home, which I, I don't doubt was an inconvenience to their evening in the same way I've had countless nights in my past where I was an inconvenience to others. They drive her home, drop her off, leave the car, they go on. Next day comes, right? My friend, she goes and she shares with two groups of people what happened. She shares with those friends that she'd spent that last night with, this group of folks who are good, kind, but not followers of Christ. And she was met with, hey, you were a hassle. You were an inconvenience. That was frustrating. And then in that, the relationship almost had this bitterness to it, this coldness to it. And she was surprised. And then she shared with this other group, her community group. Right, in her community group, a group of people here, here's how they responded, knowing the same thing. No, of course, we as Christians, we never counsel and encourage drunkenness. But you know what she was met with? Love, grace, 
forgiveness, agape. And this gal had the chance as she's coming back and connecting anew in faith. Saturn was wrestling through, wait, and these two worlds won the people I went to go do it with. Shunned. And two, the people who would have never encouraged me to go there and do the same things in the same way. Loved, embraced, cared for, welcomed. The church earns trust, earns influence with others when we love deeply. When we realize I have unconditional love from him and because of that, I have true, sincere, brotherly love with one another. Let's keep going and look at verse 11. Let's keep going. Verse 11, is, it's short, but it is sweet. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So as you're building this, he's transitioning out of this theme of love deeply. And then he shifts it and aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands. It's almost this weird, awkward transition, right? There's a few things going on here that we need to understand. The first is, here's where I want us to focus, right? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. The second way that followers of Jesus Christ, we influence Others, we earn the opportunity to do so in their life as they see us live peacefully. They see us live peacefully. Here's what I mean. Aspire to live quietly. That phrase, it's like people would, scholars call it like this paradox. The reason for that is aspire. It literally means be ambitious to, be zealous for. Live quietly. What it's really talking about there? Peacefulness of mind, heart, body. It's like work really hard to lead a quiet life. Now, when we hear quiet just because of America, here's what we think. That's a person who perhaps is more introverted than extroverted, likely not outspoken, definitely never talks about faith, religion, with anybody who doesn't believe because we just want to be gracious. That's not what that word means. It's this theme where it's like, hey, we can be passionate, but not frantic. You ever get around followers of Christ who a great word you could describe them with is steady. Steady. The way I tend to think about it is, hey, these are people who, as followers of Christ, knowing no matter what, Christ sits on the throne. They keep small things small. And they work to make big things smaller. I, I had a, a boss once who said, hey, part of my role as an employee was to dampen stress, not amplify stress. It's the moment where we all go get worked up. What Christ is saying, hey, living a quiet life, it's an acknowledgement of steadiness throughout. Peace. So much so he doubles down because there must have been something going on and we don't know all the context to it here where he says, hey, mind your own affairs. You know what he's telling them there? Mind your own business. 
right? Christians, because we know peace, we have peace, we love peace. You know what we don't do? Meddle, gossip. When, when we come to conversations, we're not gasoline to the conflict. We dampen, we bring peace. Because of Jesus Christ, we are steady. A bunch of times in my life where I have not been marked by steadiness. I can remember a time in college, and this was before I became a follower of Christ, but man, I, I was so racked by uh, anxiety, nervousness, frustration, small things. I made big things. Small things, I made big things. I didn't see small things as small. I can remember so much so that throughout college, I'd never had this problem before. Throughout college, I couldn't fall asleep. Like, like I would go and I'd put my head on the pillow and my mind was always racing. Now, part of that's just my personality, which that, that's a neutral. That's not inherently negative. But for me, really what drove a racing mind as my head touched the pillow was the nervousness the fear, the anxiety, and the constant, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if. Christ calls us to live peacefully. What I would do to go to bed through college is I'd literally, I'd turn on a light beside my bed. I'd grab a book that was engaging enough to where I would want to read it when I'd go to bed, but that was boring enough to where I didn't really enjoy it all that much. And that's kind of hard to find, right? Because to find that sweet spot, of like, it's good, but it's not that good, right? And I'd read that oftentimes for two hours. I was trying to quiet my mind. I was literally trying to wear my eyes out to where I would go down. I can remember one of the first things, because uh, out, out of school, maybe, I don't know, nine months after that, I can remember trusting Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus, and it was three months into it. And I can remember there was this moment, this realization, where I realized for the first time, I've been going to bed without reading a book. Where for me, that was like this shocking thing. I can remember telling my parents, like, I've gone to bed without reading a book. And they're like, cool. And then all of a sudden, I like got weirdly paranoid, and I was like, oh no, what if it changes now, right? But hey, I, I share that because there's a peacefulness that comes being a follower of Christ. Like for me, even now, the way I respond when my head hits the pillow is an indicator of where am I in my faith? Am I trusting and knowing, hey, God is in charge, God sits on his throne, he's king, he's done everything, I can trust him with anything. He'll take care of the small things, he'll take care of the big things. Do I trust him with a thousand what ifs? Christians, we earn the opportunity to engage, to influence others when they see how we live peacefully. Steadiness of the soul. Does that mean we don't have bad days? No. But is our life marked by? I pray not. Far more. Flat. Live peacefully. Let's look at this here. Let's start again, verse 11, and then we're gonna read through 12. Verse 11 through 12. And aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. He's just saying, hey, mind your own business. And then he goes on, here's where we're picking up. 
and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may be able to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, so we address the context of this so you may be able to walk properly before outsiders. The second part, be dependent on no one, we'll see why in a minute, but really what Paul's appealing to them, and we'll talk about the context in a second, but he's appealing to them as a way that we influence others, the way we earn an opportunity to engage with them, we labor diligently. Labor diligently. The phrase Paul used there was work with your hands. In order to really understand what's going on, you gotta understand three things. The first, it's a theology of work. So, so many times we have this view in culture of like, hey, we get a case of the Mondays where we have to go back to work on Monday, or hey, we're living for the weekend. That biblically should not exist. And hey, I, I can have days where I wake up after Sunday and Monday comes and you say, hey, God, I need help. But here's the reality. Work, the component of applying your hands to something as made in the image of God, it existed in the garden. So when there was perfection, you know what else there was? Work. And the new heavens and the new earth, what will happen in eternity future, you know what there will be? Work. Now, will it be work that is toilsome, that wars against us, that brings sweat to the brow, like Genesis 3 says? No. But work has always been a divine Provision, that's the first thing you gotta know. The second thing you gotta know here is the context of Greek culture. Greeks at this time, they really despised, they looked down on manual labor, so much so that they relegated it to slaves. It was, if I could do anything to not do it, I would. Why does that matter? Because Thess Thessalonica was in Greece. So likely this new church that's growing the people who are likely coming to faith, middle-class Greeks who are doing everything they can because of a cultural understanding to avoid manual labor, when in reality, what they're being discipled in, introduced to, is a right theology of work. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord, is the way Colossians 3 would describe it. And then the final piece is these new converts likely coming out of this, wanting to avoid manual labor. These new converts, you know what they also would have heard about? Is what we're gonna talk about in detail next week and what Paul has made references to throughout. The reality that Jesus Christ will come back. And these new converts, knowing that Christ will come back, they understood that in a way of, he might be back in three days, three weeks, the latest three months where this group of people that Paul's saying, hey, work with your hands, they've likely at that point, they've become a burden. Here's what I mean. Through well-intention or background or newness in faith, perhaps unlikely a combination of it all, they've likely come and said, hey, Christ is coming. I want to avoid the work here. And there's this form of pseudo-church welfare taking place. Paul cares so much about this issue, he's gonna to speak to it in his second letter to the Thessalonians. We're not gonna turn there, but you'll see that Paul, he'll come and he'll address it in chapter three, verse 10, where he so speaks to it, because here's why this matters. Church is meant to take care of its own. Like if you are a member of the Springs, you won't be homeless. 
God's people come, those who have give to those who need, those who need give in a way that's different and over time it changes. But you know what the Bible never gives credence to? Laziness. A lack of neglect in our craft, our trade. That can be working in an office, that can be tending to a family at home. Work, labor, diligently. Right, imagine, because here's why too. Because the church, we have an honest role, a biblical command, a commission to go and take care of the needs of the community. And so as we go to do that, we need to do it, we need to do it well. And part of that is differentiating, particularly in the house of the Christian faith, those who won't work and those who can't work. Huge difference. Paul says about those who won't work, but they could He says about those people, those who don't work, this is 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, don't deserve to eat. He's counseling this group. You represent your faith and the diligence you put forward at work. So imagine you're in Thessalonica and all of a sudden you see a bunch of these new Christian converts, this growing faith that's taking root in a community. And you begin to see, wait, half those people, man, they just sit there. They just take advantage of other people in the church, those who are wealthy. I don't see them contributing to society. I don't see them going out and caring for others. They do it with a guise of, well, hey, they don't want to meet. They say their king's gonna come back. What king wouldn't say work now in a way that you can? Here's the way I think about it. Imagine if you go to a physician, say it's a surgeon, and you get this attitude where the surgeon doesn't really take work seriously. That would make me nervous, right? All of a sudden, work to them. It's like, oh yeah, hey, I think we can figure this out, but either way, we'll get there, right? So that's one area in a physician. Now let's say you go and you meet a chef, chef of a restaurant, and the chef who's in charge of taking care of the food, preparing for it and thinking about it, and the chef says, yeah, I hope it's good. You know, I, I tried for a while there, but we just kind of kept going. We're kind of doing the same thing we have been for a long time, right? That's a chef, and now, you meet that customer service representative that God knows I get, need to be more patient with. Yeah, you've never had that moment, you saints, right? But you meet that person who honestly, their job is they're not giving great care. They're not trying to help you resolve the issue. They don't really care how long you wait on hold. So let's say you got a physician that doesn't care, a chef that doesn't care, right? And then a customer service rep that doesn't care. And you go through all this moment, you get discouraged by it, and then at the end of it, you say, hey, man, I, I just would love to know, do you, do you happen to have a faith? Do you have a, a spirituality belief system? And then what if all three of them immediately perked up, immediately perked up and said, oh, absolutely. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He saved me from my sins. He sets me free by grace through faith. I do nothing for it. And one day he's coming again. I gotta tell you all about it. That would be deeply confusing. Because in service to a king who came to serve, in service to a king who said, hey, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom. For we as followers of Jesus Christ, to in every way consider others as more significant than ourself. The one who before he became, he went public right around the age 30. But before that, even learned his trade and craft as a carpenter. You think Jesus would look at them and be like, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. No, there'd be an inconsistency. 
the way people open hearts allow us to influence and to gain trust with them is when you and I, we labor diligently. If you're at home with little ones, when you take that call seriously and you say, hey, to the best of my ability, knowing God is in charge of it all, I wanna be the best mom, the best dad I can. Hey, if you're here and you engage in Christian camp, this will be the best camp. It will remind people of Eden. We will have the best culture, the best care for others. If you're a physician, you will strive to give the best care in the state of Texas. If you're the janitor, man, clean it for the glory of God and never for man. Because what happens when we do that, our diligence, our excellence, it honors God, it inspires others. Christians, we're called to be a part of a mission that advances light in a dark world. We have a king who came to do that exact thing. It matters our influence. It matters how we steward that. It matters how we care for our neighbor. And there's three ways this text is saying that this text is calling us to more and more to walk properly before outsiders so that you may not be a burden on anyone. It matters how we love deeply. And that love, as you remember, it's different. It's agape. It's unconditional. And it matters how we care for one another in here. We are not like a family. We are a family. It matters with that too. We live peacefully. I have friends. This has really convicted me this week because I'll have people come up to me and they'll say, man, you look tired. Man, you look stressed. Man, or they'll come and they'll give bad news. Hey, does this just overwhelm you? You know what that means, church? I can excel still more. I don't want to be marked by that. I want to be marked by such a supreme trust in a sovereign king. It is well. And the third way, labor diligently. Whatever work you have, Whatever, for, whatever that looks like as a teacher anywhere, strive to be the best that you can be with the gifts and talents that God gives you. And the final caveat in the theme of work, you know what Paul didn't counsel them to do? And this is more to my millennial generation. He didn't counsel them to go find the job that gave them the passion, the pay, and the position they wanted right at the start of the gate. He told them, go get a job and let your hands be calloused. You win that opportunity to influence. So here's what I wanna ask you guys, it's the same thing I'm gonna ask myself. I wanna ask us to go ask people three questions, three questions. The first two, here's who you can ask it, right? If you're part of a community group, I encourage that, but definitely a spouse. Ask them, how could I love you better? Right, go to your spouse and say, how could I love you better? And help them make it practical. Why? As marriages get healthier at the springs, you know what gets better? People looking in from over the fence and saying, those people are different. The second question I wanna ask you guys is we think about live peacefully. Now this is one, if you're in a community group, this is where I definitely ask them question. I'd ask the question, hey, what area of my life do you see that causes me the most anxiety? 
Another way to ask that. What area of my life do you see idolatry? Right, but what area of my life do you see cause the most stress and anxiety? How can I, in trusting to God, not minimizing difficult circumstances, live peacefully? And the third one, man, if you have bosses, right, I need you to go ask them, what's one way I can be a better employee? What is one way I can be a better employee? And by the grace of God, get after it. If you're at the top of the food chain, go ask those below you, what's one way I can be a better supervisor, manager, executive director, CEO, whatever? How can I do it better? And especially if they're not a believer in Christ, here's what you should do. Use this as an opportunity to say, and here's why this matters. I have a faith in a king who loves me and that love changes me. And part of the way that that changes me is he calls me to be one of the best employees that ever works for you. If I haven't been doing that, will you forgive me? And will you help me do that more? Y'all, as I think through this whole idea, here's why I think it really matters. As I, I, I think through this whole idea, there's a phrase that keeps coming to mind as we think about the us and the them and how God wants it to be us, united. We as Christians, the way we approach how do we earn the right, have the opportunity to influence? I wanna ask us to think about it this way. The phrase I use, win the right. Win the right. You do that by the way that you love, the way that you live in peace, the way that you labor, but we as Christians, we win the right with an outside world to have people who do invite us to dinner, who say to their friends, I know most Christians that I ever meet are crazy and super weird, but these ones, they're different. It's not that they don't believe anything the others don't believe, but the way they go about it, it's just different. We gotta have them over. No, no, these are the people we want coaching our son's basketball team. We want them as tutors. We want them as teachers. They, I don't believe what they believe, but we gotta put them in charge of the PTA. Because I tell you what, when that happens, there's peace in the land. What if we, in a culture, and you even see it recently through all the midterm elections, that continuously just says, how could they say this? Can you believe that they said that? Well, what if they said this? And how did he say that? She said that in this combative mindset. What if we, what if we had a mindset of, even if they say that, even if they, they, they vote that way. My job is still to win the right. My job is still to never abandon truth, but love them in a way that wins the right to where even in division, there's the walk away and there's the, man, I don't believe what they believe. I don't think what they think, but man, that's who I'd love to have over for a backyard barbecue. That's who I wanna go eat dinner with. Church, what if we took ownership for that? the end of this sentence, so that you may walk properly, so that we may live righteously before the outsiders, win the right. I can remember in college, I had a friend who did this really well. As I shared before college, it was a, it was a rougher time, rougher season 
of life. I was wrestling with faith. I would have said I was a Christian. It wasn't until years later I realized I wasn't. I can remember there was probably about a year and a half, a season of my life where every Saturday and multiple other nights of the week, I was just drunk. Sunday morning came, and oftentimes I was still drunk or hungover. And I had a friend, a friend named Sarah, who she was a follower of Jesus Christ. She cared about me. There was something different about her. And she'd come, she'd show up in her Honda CRV, right? And I'd walk down this little driveway or I'd come out of my apartment, literally head throbbing, floor spinning, and I'd come and I'd just get in that car. Oftentimes I was met with a cup of Starbucks coffee, which I just say Starbucks because I knew that cost a lot of money, which was weird to me. And I can remember sitting there, getting the coffee, seeing this gal. And as I'm wrestling through this faith of my own past, but she's representing it now. You know what I can remember thinking? Man, that's cool of you. Most people wouldn't really want me to come. And you're helping make sure that I get there. She's not dogging me for the times I just sleep through or I just can remember looking at her and be like, I'm not going. She's not hassling me on any of that. She was ready and willing and waiting. She was winning the right to be a part of God changing my life. I can remember one time we went to church, most church services I slept through. If you fall asleep in this, I literally get it, right? I, I went, I slept through most. And I can remember we would go to brunch on days when we, we had enough time. And I can remember still being so out of it. We go, we sit down at this table, room spinning. I feel like I'm gonna vomit. The server hasn't come and put water or coffee or anything like that down. And she just looks at me and she says, go ahead. Stood up from the table. I walked in the bathroom. I turned the faucet on in the bathroom, stuck my head under it and just started drinking water. Just to calm myself down, just to not puke all over that table. I can remember turning the faucet off, cleaning off my face, walking out. It was a restaurant I've been to before with her. And she just looked at me as a server had come. She didn't miss a beat. There was no condemnation. There was an agape love. And she looked at me and said, hey, coffee's coming. I got you the breakfast special, which is what I got in every time. Years later, as I wrestled with my faith, you know who I called? The moment when I found a typo in a Bible and I thought that means the Bible can't be true because I found a typo. I am the one to bring down this false lie of centuries. You know who I called? Her. Why, church? She had won the right to influence me. She loved me deeply. She was there at times when other friends, they turned on me because as I was even trying to figure out faith, I was making decisions and she extended me grace. She lived peacefully. Like there was a steadiness to her that I had no idea what it was, how she got it. Was she perfect? No. And even in her work ethic, like I can remember sitting there and she's trying so hard and I'm like, just, I just gotta get by. And I remember thinking, I wanna be more like that, less like this. You know what I came to find out? That was Christ in her. She'd sought to win the right. And by the grace of God, when I moved out and I was by myself, I kept going to a church. And I was patient, because I knew God would send another version of Sarah. Church, we must Win the right. Knowing, knowing. Victory belongs to God, and because of that, let's go. Let me pray that we would do that.
Father, I first, I thank you uh, for Sarah. I thank you for that truth in my life, how she came, she cared, she poured into me. She loved me deeply. She lived with a peace about her and she even distinguished herself in the way she went about work. Lord, I'm asking that we would be a people who seek, who strive, knowing you love us, knowing we are imperfect to win the right to influence outsiders. That we would live in a way that's not a burden on anyone, either through laziness or apathy or poor representation of what you really care about, but in the ways that we are, we thank you knowing you are gracious. We thank you knowing you are patient. We need your help. I need your help to excel still more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, hey, thank you guys for coming. One final announcement. If you wanna come and be a part of engaging with us as we serve Colmau County through the Turkey Drive, you're welcome to go find Kim after this. If you have questions about anything from today, please don't leave without talking to somebody, but you guys go now and have a great week of worship.